Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, happy Independence Day, happy 4th of July, I hope everyone had a great weekend. Welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Jacob Myers of the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. This is part one of this interview with Jacob on everything wind and thermals for deer hunting. We discuss the basics of wind and thermals, how they interact with one another, key features of thermals how vegetation and terrain play a role, different slopes, how you should set up, thermal hubs, and much more. Be on the lookout for part two dropping later this week. There's just a lot of information packed into one episode and ran a lot longer than I was expecting. Well, I guess not to be. I I guess I was expecting that, but I split it up into two episodes to make it easily digestible. But this has a lot of really good information in it, and I hope that you enjoy it. 100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge to edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. 
If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday Story of the Week, this one comes from Eric Barnes out of Pennsylvania. Eric wrote, this hunt started back in March of 2021. I found a good looking remote area of public land while e-scouting in north central Pennsylvania and decided to scout it. I found an old shed there in a small open area, which told me that not many people were getting back in there. In addition to the shed, there was some good rut sign of both rubs and scrapes there. The area had some great terrain features and cover. I returned to the area in June to throw up two cameras. I only got a daylight picture of this buck in July and August, followed by a nighttime picture in September, so I decided not to hunt there until November. I went in for an all-day sit on November 4th after seeing two other bucks and a doe earlier that day. I was able to arrow my biggest buck to date at 6.15 p.m. on November 4th at 41 yards. He scored 123 and 6 eighths inches and was 7.5 years old. For anybody that wants to check out this buck, head over to East Meets West Hunt on Instagram or East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook and take a look at the photo of this deer, which is awesome looking buck. And also, you can even see the, the certification that he had from deer age to be able to show that it was seven and a half years old. That's truly just a mountain monarch. So congratulations again, Eric. Thank you for sending in that submission. If anybody wants to send in their own Mountain Buck Monday submission, just send it over to boateastmeetswesthunt.com. Just a short paragraph and photo or two or three, however many you want to share with it. Love to be able to read these stories and be able to share them with everybody else. In other news, this week, uh, as I said, I'll be releasing two episodes. So there'll be one coming out today and then one either on Thursday or Friday. So uh, stay tuned for that. But I will be traveling on Thursday to Colorado. I'm going to be working the Total Archery Challenge event for Sick of Gear. I'll be hanging out at the booth and shooting on the mountain there. So if anybody is in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, and going to be at this this Colorado Total Archery Challenge event, stop by, say hello. Would love to be able to get to, to chat with you there. And it's, it's going to be fun. Going to get to shoot a little bit this time. And uh, yeah, should be a really cool event. In addition, the Prime Bow giveaways, the Prime Inline 3 Bow that have been uh, going through this giveaway for the last month here, I will announce the winner on the next podcast here. I have a ton of submissions and still 
cataloging them. So to be able to go through and do the rum, the random number drawing to be able to, to pull the winner out of that. So it will come this week. It just will be probably here in this next episode and also in the email announcement. And lastly, over the weekend here, so over the 4th of July weekend, I spent two days with the Johnny Stewart and we did some scouting, scouted an area that I've been wanting to check out. And so Johnny came in with me. It's kind of an expansion to an area that I've already been in, but never in these particular locations. We did seven and a half miles, really covered some ground, dropped some cameras, found some really good sign, and I filmed the whole thing. So I will be coming out with a video on that. Uh, Just subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is just Bo Martonic. And uh, then you'll be not and sign up to be notified when new videos come out. So when you can see when that drops, but a lot of good knowledge. Every time I scout with Johnny, I learned so much. And then on day two, we went into one of his areas as he's in search for a giant buck that he had on camera the last couple of years. And he, as he states, I know everywhere he's not. So I have a good inclination. This is where he's coming from. So we went into this area and dropped a camera and spent a little bit of time in there and walking around, just continually trying to learn these mountain deer. So it was a, it was a really good time. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the time with, with Johnny and getting to learn from him some more and scouting and doing some videos there. So stay tuned for that. But anyways, I hope that uh, everyone has a great rest of your week and really enjoys this podcast with Jacob because he is a wealth of information on this stuff between his own knowledge and all the stuff that he's learned from all the guests they've had in the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. I think this is one of these episodes, actually both of these, that you're going to want to get a pen and paper down. Listen to it once through and then go back and then take notes a second time through because there's a lot of information thrown at you here. And I think it can be be really, really helpful for you when it comes to deer hunting and even hunting out west. So again, have a great week and we will see you soon. All right. We're live. Jacob Myers, welcome to the show, man. It's uh it's good to good to get to have you on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, this is gonna be exciting. It's exciting topics too. So you know, deer season's quickly approaching, uh, and this is something. This is a discussion we're gonna have today that I think everybody's gonna need to know about if they don't know about, and also realize how much of a, a dark hole thermals is gonna be when they start to dive into this topic. <laughs> yeah, I know. And uh, so it's funny. So this is the first time that I've had you on the podcast. So Jacob is one of the podcast hosts for the Southern Outdoorsman. I've had Andrew on the podcast. Probably, I guess it's been almost two years ago now since since I've had him on uh, to be able to talk and anybody that's listening I'll just tell you right up front if you guys like the the mountain buck stuff that I do the big woods bucks type stuff you got to check out their podcast the southern outdoorsman both Jacob and Andrew dive super deep in the topics they get some really good guests on and you guys put out three shows a week so there's not a not a shortage of information there I'll put it that way <laughs> yeah, yeah not at all but yeah I mean it's gonna be exciting though having this conversation with you because you're coming from a different area of the country that just personally I have a very little experience hunting uh, and then also it's just totally different situations but still no matter where you're at this topic thermals is going to play a factor no matter where you're at, but it's going to be very obvious, especially when your area is like 
where you hunt and also areas that I hunted a little bit last year, getting more into some mountain areas and what we're going to be hunting more this year as well. Uh, it's really multiplied in those situations. So this is gonna be a super fun conversation for us to have. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And one thing that I think is funny is, is when I first, you know, found you guys' podcast before I met both of you, it was like, okay, I was like, all right, you know, Southern hunting. I'm like, ah, it's, you know, probably not going to be the same, but I saw some things in there. I was like, oh, big wood stuff, some mountain country. I'm like, let me check it out. And man, other than like maybe species of trees and plants and some little nuances there, there's a, a lot of similarities that go across the board from what, you know, where I'm at more in the Northeast portion of the Appalachian mountains versus where you're at, um, down South. And so I guess before we get rolling here, let's just give a little background on yourself, kind of where you're located at a little bit about the podcast and, uh, your hunting experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, anyone that hasn't listened to our show, uh, of course, my name is Jacob Myers. Um, been running the Southern Outdoorsman podcast going on four years. We'll hit five years this coming, uh, February, which is kind of crazy to think about. And like you, I've taken the leap of faith to go full time with this. Yes, you did. Uh, did that. Yeah, did that last November. And it's been crazy ever since just diving into this and, um, you know, kind of hunting experience. Last eight to 10 years has been majority of public land, but previous to that, got into hunting through my uncles, my my uh, mother's brothers. Uh, dad doesn't hunt, doesn't really come from a hunting family, and it's been interesting kind of learn from those guys as a, at early age, uh, you know, five, six, eight, ten 10 years old. And then what was kind of special about me when it came to hunting experiences, which a lot of people have not experienced this, is I actually went to a college uh, preparatory boarding school in Arkansas uh, for high school. And that school owns 2,500 acres. And we were able to have weapons. We could have rifles, um, shotguns, muzzleloaders, our bow, all of our hunting equipment, and go hunt that 2,500 acres and actually had a hunting club. So I got to hunt a more than most kids do at that age uh, back then. Cause if I wasn't playing sports and school was out, I was up in there and hunting those areas, hunting in and around the uh, Mount magazine area of Arkansas in Northwest Arkansas, uh, which definitely kind of fueled my, uh, hunger to learn. And then fast forward to college, it was all getting into public land. I didn't have much private land at all to hunt back home and didn't want to pay for hunting club dues down here in the South, which is very, very common for guys getting into big leases. Uh, and those can range from a very inexpensive one would be, you know, $800 all the way up to three, $4,000. Uh, decided to go all in on public land and uh, first two years was a huge struggle. Uh, like anybody probably starts hunting public land. It's not what you're maybe used to if you're hunting private land. And uh, slowly but surely started learning there, and that's what kind of fueled us, to, me and Andrew Maxwell, to start the podcast after I met him in college was like, man, there's so much to learn, and there's so many successful hunters out there, especially in our area of the country being the southeast. Uh, specifically, I'm coming in from like, the Birmingham, Alabama area, kind of central Alabama, and I'm like, man, if we started a show it would be interesting just to learn from these individuals and just come from it as like, Hey, we're still learning. Like we're still here. We're trying to learn what we're doing here and put all this together. And, and finally we decided to, uh, right after about graduating college started to start this, this podcast. And it's been a whirlwind of information flowing at us as we've talked to more and more successful hunters like you have as well. And you start to learn more in a short window of time than you probably could have ever learned by yourself because you're getting perspectives from people not only from all over the southeast like who we've talked to but all over the country as well and they've hunted everywhere and it's it's fascinating the amount of details we're able to pick up especially you know at our age being in our mid-20s to then go implement 
you know, in other areas and start having success with it. So uh, it's been an awesome journey, but um, definitely you could say that after you talk to hundreds of hundreds of successful hunters, because we're over 380 episodes on our podcast right now, um, you quickly learn, uh, or I could say you have a higher DRQ. That doesn't mean you have a higher uh, success rate there. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll say that as well. But uh, it's the amount of information coming in is just unbelievable, man. But uh, again, super excited to kind of have this conversation with you today because I know you've picked up a ton of things as well, just talking to other successful hunters that's kind of helped cultivate you to kind of maybe fine tune a few things and really kind of dive deep on specific topics and strategies to help you become more successful as well. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it's funny. I'd, I'd be interested to, I'm going to ask you this question, but like I, one thing that I've noticed from being able to talk to all these successful hunters, no matter, and I've talked to a lot of Western hunters, I've talked to a lot of whitetail hunters, they all have like very similar tendencies. It might not be, they have the exact same tactics that they apply, but they have very similar tendencies on things that they do that, you know, that I truly believe making them successful like one of the things is that they just one they just don't quit like they're they're going until the end they're not giving up they're not trying that's something that i've noticed they all have like certain little details that they pay attention to some like rank different things on a hierarchy than than others but and they're just kind of disciplined to uh, to being able to to their craft and what they're doing and and they're you know experts in their area for that. I, so I'm interested to hear like what, what have you found any similarities like that between the different hunters that you've talked to? Yeah. The, the most fascinating one that's across the board, no matter, uh, you know, any topic you want to get into is you got to put in the work. The guys that are most successful are putting in that work, you know, through scouting, in-season scouting as well, postseason scouting, but really fine-tuning what they're trying to do every single year and build upon what they learn this year for the next year. They're not going with the mindset of, you know, what can help me be successful for this season? I mean, yeah, that's there, but they're also trying to build a knowledge base of what can I learn from this season experiences here that I then can apply for next season. Uh, and I feel like when you have that mindset and you're going in there with that understanding, you're, you're playing that long game. You're not playing the short game of like short-term success. You're building that long game, which is going to make you become more successful long-term. And that's like the number one you know factor I see with a lot of these guys is they're, they're not so short-term minded. It's long-term minded and really trying to fine-tune their craft to become more successful and become a better hunter. And that's, I mean, that's coming from, you know, you've got guys that we've talked to who hunt all different habitat types, all different areas of the country and regions. Um, even over a Southern podcast, it's like there's so many areas that are fascinating to hear from different perspectives of hunters. But you have guys that are like very dead set, especially maybe during the rut where maybe they only hunt a few different areas that they know if I sit here long enough, I'm going to have that buck come through this travel corridor. And then you have guys on the complete opposite spectrum that are like, man, I'm going to hunt super aggressive. I'm going to cover a ton of ground. I'm going to make a ton of mistakes and you know bust a lot of deer, but I'm going to be successful at some point. And all those guys are successful in their own light. They just have different strategies, but it all comes back down to building that knowledge base and learning what you're doing now to apply for next year uh, and being consistent. So that's a huge factor for sure. Yeah, no, I I, th I think you hit the nail on the head there and definitely seen those different consistencies. And, and it is funny, like you have the, the people that like to wait it out and like, and I felt like with my own like strategy of hunting, like I'm more aggressive early on. And then once it hits the rut time frame, I'm a person that's not as aggressive. Like I, I think even all the way up and towards in our you know region of the country, end of October, I'm pretty aggressive and moving around. And then once it's like, 
rut, I'm getting in those funnel areas and I'm sitting and I'm waiting in that tree for long, for days on end, which is hard when you scout so many different areas and you have like all these ideas and what could be good or your cameras, if you have a cell camera going off, you know, think, but like, I know that it's going to be good. It's just low deer density. And I just got to, you know, <laughs> basically play that long game and, and wait it out. And that's kind of just like, and I've learned that out of a mixture of different, uh, from talking to people on the podcast. I feel like, I feel like my dad plays a little bit more of the, the long game when he's, you know, hunting the rut and I've learned that growing up. And then I felt like I kind of transitioned mo- mostly because I was taking in probably too much media and I like went all in on being like extremely mobile and jumping around. And then I just was like struggling really bad. And I found like for me, me personally, I, I needed like a little bit of a, a middle ground there and kind of, uh, change that depending on the time of the year. But that's just, that's me personally, kind of what I've learned through, through doing this podcast and everything else. So it's been, it's been pretty neat. Yeah. It's amazing. Again, you just find there's so many different ways to kill a deer. That's what I've had conversations with people like, how can you do, you know, as many episodes that we've done and a lot of those, you know, talking about deer hunting and not get burned out from it. And I'm like, there's, like if you just look at the grand scheme of things, like it's not hard to kill a deer. Now, if you're talking about mature buck, it gets that much more harder. And then, you know, especially if you start killing up, you know, maybe a mature buck that's five, six, seven, eight years old on public land, that's even that much higher potentially too, because of the hunting pressure. And the one thing that we've come to realize is there's so many different ways to be successful. I mean, after talking to literally hundreds of successful hunters, like some are similar, but they all do things slightly different. They have a different outlook on it. And that's the exciting thing when it comes to deer hunting. What gets me excited for this fall and, and probably a lot of listeners too is no matter your style and strategy, like you don't have to do this specific one thing to be successful. There's a bunch of different strategies and styles. It's just about being consistent with it. You can't try something for two weeks and be like, Oh, I'm now moving on to something else. Yeah. Um, uh, because that can really happen, especially if you listen to a lot of these podcasts, cause you might get someone's take one week that does something very specific. Like maybe they are that more aggressive hunter at all times of the year. And then you listen to somebody the following week. There's like, Oh man, you know, I'm, you know, I got this one couple areas that I know like these, you know, travel corridors are hot. And if I sit here long enough, I'm going to catch a buck coming through there. And they're the complete opposite of the previous guy, which is overly aggressive, moving around a whole bunch, of the whole nine yards. And if you try a little bit of both, you're going to have probably just a little bit of success. You got to stick with one and dive into it and have the confidence, but the confidence comes with time. You can't just, you can't just fake confidence. No, no. Hunting. And yeah, you, you hit that. I, I, again, I look back at my own personal struggles with, with, you know, even early at the beginning when I had the podcast, I started like having less success as <laughs> in and taking longer to be able to kill a buck because I was jumping around and I was trying, I'd get somebody on, I'd be like, Oh, that's like, I'm going to go all in on that. And I do. And I'm like, all right, no, like take a little bit from everything and kind of add it to your own strategy or have it in your mind and, and, and stick to stick to your game plan because uh you can definitely chase your tail around quite a bit but and you know and that's and that's where like with um thinking about like wind and thermals like so i've hunted the big woods i've hunted the mountains my entire life and i've kind of for the most part was always just like gonna have winds doing what they want to do and you just you deal with it and i've just kind of that was been my mentality. And it wasn't until, you know, the last, I'd say four or five years that I've really tried to understand it more and pay attention to it and try to predict some of that thing, some of those things. And I, I feel like it's one of the most complicated 
things that can be in the in the whitetail woods and even out west. I mean, it's the same concepts that goes to the mountains out west. But but I've learned so much from it and has helped a lot. I mean, even last year, just to just to start with a, a quick story and then I'll go into yours, but I won't go into the full detail of it. But when I shot my opening day buck in Pennsylvania last year, that was all based on knowing that from trail camera knowledge and and taking back and looking at the weather that on predominantly southwest winds this buck like to travel down this creek bed heading back to bed coming from this new logging cut but and the wind was always in his his advantage at that point with the way the wind was doing but it was pretty close to this creek and if i could get into a tree right above that creek i could take advantage of the thermals that from that cooler water rushing down and i actually did a video where i showed i'd throw milkweed out in front of my stand watch it go one direction and then i'd go up into the tree that i was in and drop it and it would suck right down and go down the creek and that worked that morning and i ended up being able to kill that buck but without that understanding of of how wind and thermals can interact it it uh that spot where it looked unhuntable you know what i mean so that's that's just something that that came to kind of fruition last year of like a really aha moment with that have you had any experiences like with learning about you know wind and thermals and like what's what was your kind of like aha moment with that well i'll say this i think most people growing up especially if you have some kind of outside influence especially as a child maybe growing up with some kind of adult that took you whether it's a an uncle your father granddad whoever a friend is, you know, you hunt high in the mornings because the rising thermals and you hunt low in the evenings. That's like the, you know, everybody knows or is taught that growing up, but it's never into specifics on like why and also the time frame of when that actually works. Um, and one of the big aha moments for me was back in 2018, actually maybe it was 20, it was 2017, uh, up in Nashville or up in Tennessee, I was hunting some piece of public or piece of private land I had up there. And it was a mix, it was an old cattle field or cattle pasture and cattle farm is about 40 acres and it was for the first time they had their velvet hunt which is in uh august super hot blazing temperatures and we kept having this batch group of bucks come through this one little creek drainage going through the property that had a bunch of timber on it next to a big hillside with a lot of timber but then to the opposite hillside was just a big overgrown pasture that the sun would beat on it was a south-facing slope and we hunted that bottom that morning and because we're thinking fallen thermals is going to, you know, for the morning, which we're, we'll talk more about this a little bit later, but like there's going to be a certain window of time, the thermals are going to be dropping up until that sun gets up. And we're like, we're going to be down in the bottom because the bucks were coming off this big hill going out and back and forth to this cattle pasture, this big cattle field. And what we learned, and this is kind of the aha moment, was that sun came up and finally, you know, around eight, nine o'clock, that thermal switch happened. And the thermal started pulling out. Um, directly over that sunny area of that hillside that has all the grass on it, the big overgrown pasture. And you could drop the milkweed and watch it go up that way uh, because it's very light and variable wind conditions. Well, when the cloud cover came over, because there was a thunderstorm coming, that cloud cover came over, I watched that milkweed that was way up 80, 90 yards above us up on this hill fall right back down and right past us again just when that cloud cover came through. It was light and variable. There was very little to no wind at all that day. And it showed how much of a, a, a basis of not only the morning and evening thermals you know, change, but also just whether it's super sunny versus a heavy cloud cover comes over and how the thermals can switch as well, especially on a light and variable condition day, which has become one of my favorite days to hunt now. It's light and variable. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I like I like those light variable wind days and, and a little bit more predictable than when you start getting some higher 
uh, velocity winds and things that get some swirling going on and some switching and, and things like that. I mean, I, I think what you're talking about, the cloud cover, one of the biggest times when I noticed that was hunting out west. And every afternoon, a thunderstorm would roll over the mountains. And as the cloud cover came over, it would be in the middle of the afternoon where it was sunny and those thermals were rushing up. And it would just completely change and whew, like, you know, and, and learn that from trying to put stalks on mule deer or elk. It's like, okay, normally you come from above them because those thermals are coming up during the day while they're bedded. But you see a cloud coming over, you're just like, well, here this goes, you know, or <laughs> if you're in range, we're, uh, we're done at this point. So it's, 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 uh, it's an interesting, interesting concept. Yeah, it is. But again, once you go out there and you, you have this mindset and understand like what you're looking for and you implement it and you see what happens, you're like, oh, it like it you can learn so much quicker. Like we can talk about thermals all day long, but you're going to have to like listeners have to go out there and see for themselves and actually pay attention to this stuff where they're out there. And then it'll click more so for them. Uh, because as we're talking about like our personal experiences and going through some of these different topics, when it comes to thermals, we've experienced a lot of this stuff, or we've talked to people that are very experienced. Who's seen this for a very long time. It's just hard for somebody who's never keyed in on learning about thermals understand this. Like I had a guy message us on our podcast. We had a very heavy thermal episode last year, win episode. Um, and he messaged us and he was just trying to learn how to hunt the wind as a new hunter and just hunt wind direction, kind of keeping wind to face, wind quartering to, um, or even a crosswind. And he's like, I never even thought about thermals. He's like, that makes it that much more complicated. And it really does. Yeah. But you have to understand how to slowly break it down so you can use those thermals potentially to your advantage, uh, along with something that makes sense for that buck as you know he's coming through the air. Like what you were saying, like that buck was coming from like the buck from last year opening day. It was coming from that cutover, working that creek bottom, going back to bed. And the wind was always in his advantage, especially in that setup. But you know, you found a way to be able to get in there and use those thermals, that drawing, pulling thermal to that water source to go down that creek to give you what we'd call or a lot of, a lot of guys call like a killing wind. Uh, and that's exactly like what that setup sets up for. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so I, I think, I think before we get too deep into this here, give just your kind of like definition of like what wind is and what thermals are like, just kind of give like your just basic definition of it before we go a little bit deeper. Have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart and others available at all times? Well, you can with CyberScout from Spartan Forge. CyberScout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. CyberScout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%, and if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S., and I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade short barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. 
You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code West 10 you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. Well, of course, wind's going to be generated and something that you can see. Uh, there's a bunch of like apps. I-, I can't remember the one app. Andrew has an app on his phone that shows like detailed wind current models. Like while you're out in the field, it's very fascinating to kind of see because it's pretty spot on, at least for the areas that we hunt. But a wind's going to be generated from your high to low pressures moving through. Okay, so as you have a low pressure move out, high pressure moves in, you're going to have a lot of wind come in and probably sustained winds until that low pressure comes back and, and vice versa. When you have, and I'm t- that's high low pressures like storm fronts, low pressure being a storm front. With your thermals, that's generated from the heat and the cooling effect of the earth. And in some areas, it's more noticeable than others. Like you're going to the Rocky Mountains, that's a huge surface area that heats up in the daylight that when that thermal starts rising, it is a rushing effect. I mean, it feels like it's this wind, which uh, a lot of people, I guess you could uh, say, maybe even overlook uh looking at wind direction while they're out there but it's mostly just thermal effect um and then also the cooling effect as well but even on flat land like we have a lot of listeners that you know live in south georgia south alabama louisiana and it's flat you still have thermal effect there it's just not as noticeable if you don't pay attention to it yep so again it's just that heating cooling effect of the earth and there's a lot of factors that can change how quickly that thermal starts rising especially when we start talking about leaf on versus leaf off conditions in the timber yeah, no, definitely. And and I think like, so um, before I, I dive, ask you questions about that leaf off and leaf on kind of concept with it, I wanted just to give like, I, I wrote down just a few like factors that like to give you a kind of situational stuff, how thermals interact in certain situations. So the easiest thing is kind of what you said, sunny areas will be warmer than shaded areas, which cause some upward thermals, depending on how big that surface area is, depending on the speed of it. If you can feel it, notice it, those types of things, cloud cover and storms rolling in, uh, causing downward thermals. Areas with running water, typically cooler, causing those thermals to pull in the direction of the water. But that really depends on the water, the depth, the width, the flow rate. There's, you know, there's, I I don't actually calculate that stuff. I just kind of look at it and then, you know, throw some milkweed and see if it's actually interacting. I did a video the other day with a small spring seep and wondering if I could use that for accessing, you know, even in the afternoon to hunt this bedding spot. And like, will this actually work while everything else is sunny? And you basically had to be like in the water pretty low for it to, to cause that effect because it was such a small body of water that it wasn't like really doing, doing the work of like something else might be able to do. But then you get like stagnant water, such as like beaver ponds or anything else. And they'll stay warmer when the surrounding air, say, uh, say the surrounding air drops, you get like a cold morning closer to freezing, something like that. That'll cause consistent uphill thermals and that's why i always like hunting around beaver ponds where i'll get a tree like right up against it because you can have that water coming down it's falling the thermals are coming down hit that water and then it goes up and your and your air goes up and i call that like your bulletproof spot like there's no you're just you feel invincible up in the tree you just you get up you get in the morning you draw your bow back and wait because it's it's gonna happen you know (laughs) but uh and then like heavy thermal cover areas like hemlocks and pine trees hold heat when it's cold. Um, so then you have a little bit of more of that uphill when it's really cold out. And then when it's warmer outside, it stays cooler in there. So I just did a video on my Instagram story the other day showing where this spot through almost 
all of hunting season until it gets into late season, you have downward thermals in there mm. no matter what time of the day. Cause it's just so shaded. And I, so like when I'm hunting that hillside, I hunt on the downward side of the trail because it's just, that's just what it does. And I didn't notice that and had not really found many areas that were that like strong with that's exactly how it worked until except for i just did it and i screwed it up and then you know learning with milkweed and and playing around with it and then openings in the timber get that get more sunlight create upward thermals and calm conditions so like that's why like when you hear you can't hunt crick bottoms a lot of things and i do hunt a lot of crick bottoms if i i usually find areas that have like a little opening within that timber uh maybe there's a hemlock tree with a big scrape underneath it that i'm hunting but that little opening has that little bit of that upward thermals that are coming off it because it heats up a little bit more and then trees large rocks other obstructions can influence those air currents so that's just uh something else to to note there but um do you have anything else to add to that yeah actually you mentioned something i was going to bring up and you just like you just ran with it which is pretty awesome but the idea of like hemlocks and we don't have a ton of hemlocks where we're at but areas of the country that do there's a specific part of alabama that has hemlocks but that's it those, they hold so much moisture. And our buddy, uh, Michael Pike, he talks a lot about this because he hunts that area that has a bunch of hemlocks in Alabama, that at all points of the day, it is like a, and I, well, also I've seen this with mountain laurel too, which I'll talk about in just a second, but it holds so much moisture there and the air is so much cooler in that shade that, at, like you said, at all points of the day, even if there's direct sunlight on that area, you're still having like a following thermal effect right there while you're in that little hub. The second you get outside of that to the to the left or right, whether it's 10 yards, whether it's 40 yards, and you're kind of more out in the open or out underneath those, uh, those hemlocks, then you could have a more upward pooling thermal, which we would call like a thermal split, where you have a splitting effect where at one point is going down, at one point it's going up. And if you know how to use that to your advantage, you can have a ton of success finding that area and hunting that. Mm, yeah, that's that's really what, so. What was he saying about the the moisture? I'm so the sure. moisture content, yeah, the moisture content, especially like some of those areas, it seems like there, it's more moist grounds too, compared to like going outside the hemlocks. It's a little dr- more drier, getting more direct sunlight. That that moisture is holding uh, that air, making that air more damp, making it heavier, and it's cold, keeping that uh, thermal effect kind of pulling downhill throughout those hemlocks, especially if it's like a big drainage going up. Um, and that's where uh, it kind of like where you find them here. It's like, they're covering these little drainages. It's not even like a Creek. It's like just a, a gully going up yep. a hill and that it'll have a pulling effect of thermals going downhill at all points of the day. But I've seen the same thing happen in Mount Laurel in an area that we've scouted where it was a super dense, I mean, big mature Mount Laurel. I mean, Mount Laurel, it's 15, 20 foot tall. And you're actually like, you could walk underneath it, like without a problem. And you get down in these big Creek drainages and it's like rising thermal when you're on the edge of the Mount Laurel up above it. And the second you drop off into it, it's automatic starts pulling downhill. Really? Interesting. So what, what would you do? Um, yeah, what would you do in an area like that? How would you use that to your advantage if you found something, whether it's the hemlocks or the mountain laurel where it does that split? What, how, how do you look at a spot like that? So I can give this from a personal experience of a place we just scouted a few weeks ago that has a bunch of mountain laurel on it, um, is we're actually going to be using one of the creek systems. It's a big ridge mountain system, uh, at least big in Alabama standpoint. And the mountain laurel covers all the creeks for the most part. And as it's going up in the much steeper elevation, like it's the creek stays, you know, 18 feet wide, but it's just super thick with mountain laurel. And the deer aren't necessarily going down into it. They're, they're kind of 
their side hill and maybe crossing it, but they're not running the length of it uh, necessarily. And it's a perfect place for access, whether it's morning or afternoon, is walking that edge, going up inside that Mount Laurel and traveling it because it's big enough for us personally we can travel through it. Um, and then getting to a certain point where we want to take a, a vertical approach going straight uphill instead of side hilling. Uh, so you get straight up out of that mountain laurel. In this one area we're trying to hunt, there's a big bed we found that's on this super long ridge point. And uh, what we're talking about doing is, again, coming up through that creek system with that mountain laurel, morning or afternoon, pulling thermals no matter what. So we're going uphill. And then getting to the certain point where we can go straight up out of the mountain laurel and go straight up to the top of the ridge and come in from the backside of him uh, where that buck's going to be at. Uh, and the whole point of kind of going straight uphill is trying to get up where – even in the early morning, you're still having dropping thermals, but you're not side hilling where you're casting that scent linear, like kind of linear wise. You're, you're casting that scent in a straight line and that cone's kind of going straight down and kind of out, which is a lot better than if you were side hilling around for half a mile. Um, so, and then kind of coming up at the top and then staging. And you've heard guys like, um, I know Nathan Killens talked about it on your show. Uh, when we interviewed him, he talked about it. And a couple other guys too, of kind of using that advantage of that falling thermal in the morning to get up on the backside of that ridge or that mountain system waiting for that sun to come up and that thermal start rising and then going over the top of the edge. So when you're, as you're coming over the top to get ready to set up at whatever elevation you're going down to, that thermal's already rushing back up and they're not going over, you know, when it's still dark. Yeah, no, that's, (laughs) that's, that's a really cool, um, that's that's a really cool area. And I I guess I hadn't noticed it much with the mountain laurel and most of the mountain laurel that I've hunted isn't that tall. You know, it might be at the most seven or eight feet, you know, that they get up to. I've seen rhododendrons, which I'm assuming would probably have very similar uh, effects. Have you hunted any rhododendron type areas? I haven't uh, just because we don't really necessarily have it a lot down here. Um, pretty much all the guys I've talked to, though, that, you know, North Carolina yeah. um, and kind of that, that area of the Appalachian Mountains that has a ton of it. And it's definitely a factor like this. Yeah, when I was down, I was not hunting. I was just vacationing down by Asheville, North Carolina, and like every there was so much rhododendron covering it, and I was like, "Man, that's some thick stuff. That's creating some cover there." But um, oh, that's that's an interesting, an interesting aspect as far as um, I, I guess I never I never understood the science behind the moisture aspect in in the hemlocks there that mm-hmm. I was just like, Oh, it's just, I don't know. It's creating this blanket and this is, you know, why, but I guess that's what creates a moisture is because of, of that, keeping the kind of cooler temperatures in there and everything and not letting it dry out from the sun beating on it all the time. Absolutely. Shades, it shades it out. And so it keeps that moisture there, which is going to keep a cooling effect. And also I'm, I don't know, you know, you may or may not have noticed this up there, but I know down here in those areas, especially if it's not down in a creek drainage but more kind of like up in a uh, a drawl or a uh, a gully going up the ridge that's where you'll find bucks bedding in the summertime because uh, it's so much cooler mm-hmm. uh, compared to like being up on top of that ridge point where it's a lot hotter air it's a lot drier air instead they'll might go in that one little pocket uh, where they can still have a good sight advantage visual advantage but also smell advantage but it's also cooler for them and you know keeping the bugs off of them Yep. I, I, I definitely notice that. And that's where like, when I run my summer cameras, like I like to find areas that have uh, hemlocks or something that butt up against like a clear cup. Cause it's like, all right, we got some bedding stuff that keeps them kind of cool in there. And then you got the clear cut up on the top or wherever it's at. That's, you know, three to eight year old range. It has some really good brows in it. And it's just like, oh man, like this is good. Find a scrape on the mm-hmm. kind of in between the two there. And that's where I get a lot of like summer inventory spots. Uh, but because I feel like in my theory that those bucks were bedding in those, those hemlocks and kind of staying a little bit 
cooler in those locations and, and being able to have that. So that's, that's interesting that you have similar effects. And when you're talking about like some of the gullies that are like, that might have hemlocks or some sort of like a conifer tree that's in it is in New York last year on my hunt when I, when I killed a buck up there and I got there, like, I don't know, it was late morning by the time I got up there and I was like, never been there before, but I found one of those like draws that was coated in hemlocks all the way down to the bottom. And I just worked my way up it and late morning, it was still pulling downwards. And then I got up to the top and got out in the open and I ended up working the bench systems down, kind of using those thermals coming up. And then I caught a buck feeding and, and shot it, but it was, it, you by by understanding some of those different concepts of thermals and how those those work, and especially in some of the mountainous areas, I think it's uh, I think you can really it's a really deadly tactic, especially for access like that you were mentioning there. Yeah, and one thing I want to bring up, if it's not too big of a sidetrack, but we had mentioned early on was the difference between thermal effect with leaf on conditions like early season versus leaf off conditions like kind of like later in the season, because a lot of people don't think about this, and this is something I just I physically saw last year for the first time, especially when I was hunting um, up in the Ozark Mountains in northwest Arkansas on some public land, but it was October. It was still had leaf on, complete leaf on conditions. There was no leaves falling at all. Everything was still green, and people don't realize, and again, I, this is something I'd heard about but never had actually paid attention to until last year. With those leaf on conditions, especially if it's heavy uh, deciduous trees like your hardwoods and everything, it's shading out like there's a, there's that much more shade underneath those trees, especially if it's more of a, a dense packed um, landscape and it's not very sporadic trees where there's a lot of sunlight hitting the ground. If the sunlight can't hit the ground directly, it's like a bubble effect uh, where it takes that much longer for that direct sunlight to heat up the canopy to finally get through to finally start warming the ground to then have a thermal effect. So you have following thermals for a lot longer period of time underneath that heavy canopy than you do when the leaves are off and that sunlight can come straight to the ground. It heats up much quicker and you have a much quicker rising thermal. And that's specifically more so for a rising thermal than a falling thermal. And I saw that specifically in Arkansas last year on a bear hunt where I was hunting a big bench off the side of the mountain where you had to come in from the top. And I had set up specifically thinking that the the bear or bucks were going to be coming as a big bench. We're going to be coming down the length of that bench and then dropping off. I was set up where I had a, a big drainage that dropped off the bench that went straight down away from me for like another 800 feet. And I set up at the, the head of that watching the bench, uh, set up where my falling thermals would go downhill, uh, kind of into that gully where it's kind of out of the way, uh, or that draw, whatever you want to call it. And it was, I was thinking based off, it was an Eastern facing slope, which is another important factor. We can talk about whether you're hunting like a North facing slope, South facing slope, East or West. Cause it all plays a difference of like when that thermal switch happens. But this was an eastern facing slope that had another r- big mountain ridge directly east of it that that sun had to come up over the top of before it started warming up this eastern facing slope. And I had it in my mind that it was probably going to be right around 8.30 by the time that sun got high enough up to finally start heating this up to have that thermal rise. And it was 8.30 on the dot. The sun had been up over that ridge for about 45 minutes and finally warmed up that cooler air, that cool air where I was at, that bubble, to start rising and it was like an automatic switch. It almost went from like a falling thermal to like it paused and like just nothing was happening for like four or five minutes. And I was trying to pay attention to it and I was like dropping milkweed constantly when this was happening. And then it was like a, sw- a switch happened and then it went 
all uphill, all straight up up the ridge, uh, which still worked out really good for me because uh, I called in two bucks. I just screwed up on getting the shot opportunity at, at one of the bucks, and then also I had a bear come in that morning too uh, and passed it, which was kind of dumb. But it was a shooter bear. I didn't think about it. Uh, I thought it was smaller than what it was, and then thankfully I was able to shoot another bear later that afternoon on the same bench but 800 yards farther down. Oh, dang. <laughs> uh, but but it's it was just amazing when you could like, well, I'm shooting a new bow this year, and I am pumped. After playing around with the buddy's Hoyt RX-8, the smile on my face made the decision for me. The first thing I noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like I prefer. I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the Go Sticks 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX Exact Cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt. Ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier. If you want to experience what I'm talking about, head to your nearest Hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself. You can learn more at Hoyt.com. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out at, or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at the mobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. Have it in your mind that, hey, I, we know we need... 45 minutes to probably an hour of sunlight to heat this side of this ridge up before it starts rising because it was such a big bo- a big area and also it was um you could just feel like the moisture in the air and i mean it was like on the dot started happening and uh and also that's when the bucks started moving that's actually i was calling a little bit that morning and uh and called in those two bucks that came in uh and they kind of came in right down that side of the ridge and just unfortunately the way i was set up uh they came in off my back right shoulder and i went to kind of spin around when i heard them walking they were already too close they're 25 yards from me and uh, coming through a thicket and busted me but yeah it's amazing dude it really is yeah, and and that's so that's incredible too. Like that, you know how you kind of looked at that hill and you were like, okay, when the sun's coming up on this side, it's going to take a little bit. And and that's you know with with understanding these basics, it, you know might not, you know someone that's hearing this stuff for the first time might not be able to recognize it right away. But as if you have that just in the back of your mind and as you're at spots and you're thinking about it and you're looking at it on the maps and just trying to do a little bit of predicting and then using your own uh, basically experience of either not working out or it does and and noting those different things to to be able to recognize it and like that you know talking about um where you're we're talking about the the leaf cover that's that's uh definitely i see in areas that are like you have some really big oak canopies um and oak trees tend to keep their leaves on longer than some of the other ones in the area so like the it it creates that effect it takes it a little bit longer i i don't know the exact time and all you know but as far as 
being able to recognize that it'll take a little bit more than than an area that uh, you know maybe it had a bunch of maple or cherry or something else that might drop earlier in October their leaves versus you know the oak trees that you know might not be dropping their leaves until November and and that depends on where you're at in the country is how leaf drop leaf drop goes but I think I think um, I think that's a really important point that you noted there. Yeah, it, it very much happens in my experience, big in and around big oaks, and that's kind of like where this whole ridge system was monster red oaks and white oaks. I mean, food was everywhere; everything was dropping, both red and white oaks. Uh, and there was a sign; it was ridiculous, just the amount of feed sign you'd find. But that that is the kind of the factor there, because yeah, if you're in an area like, and also you got to think where I'm at, even in Arkansas, you know latitude line we're so much lower than you guys kind of like where you're at so like what's when y'all's leaves start changing colors and start falling up there it's still green down here so like we we have a lot of this season especially some of these states like kentucky uh georgia south carolina north carolina that have like september openers uh tennessee as well you have such a long window of time of literally over 30 days that you're hunting absolutely green forest uh, and, and that's a big, big thing to like kind of pay attention to is like, you, you really got to take that consideration because so many people just had the mindset that the second the sun comes up, you know, thermals are going to start rising. Cause that's kind of what they've been taught. Like, you know, in the morning you hunt high and the evenings you hunt low and it's just, you got to think where you're at in hill country. It, it ha- takes longer for that to heat up in hill country, unless you're like an exposed Eastern facing slope facing the sun when it rises compared to flatland like flatland you're going to have if everything's completely flat the biggest elevation change is just a few feet you're going to have this the rising thermal happen much quicker there than you will in hill country and hill country is going to happen a lot quicker than you're going to find in the mountains unless you're on a big eastern facing slope that's completely exposed to the sunlight the second the sun comes up over the horizon yeah no and then, and what you just said about like I, I can think of like the mountains rocky mountains like there was, you know, a few areas that I was hunting. It wasn't until 10 o'clock in the morning, you typically see the thermals start to switch. And actually it'd be like, it'd be almost like an hour sometimes of like swirling and not really sure what it's doing yet. You know, it's starting to go, it's starting to go up, but it's still going down and it's kind of creating this swirl effect. And like whenever we were looking at, like say, putting a uh, stock on for a buck that was bedded or something always waited till at least 11. That was kind of like what we noticed in that area when things kind of settled in a little bit more, but you still, you had to do it before the mm-hmm. afternoon storm rolled in about two thirty three. So you had like this window of when you could make a move. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's a really important, really important thing to note. So t- discuss a little bit while you brought up East facing slopes, warming up quicker because the sun, rising in the east like explain that a little bit more and kind of the different facing of the the mountains and how that could affect that yeah i mean it's something that you really got to consider especially when it comes to entrance um points and also like potentially why is that buck gonna be better there and also the travel path of course y'all have much harsher winters where you're at compared to like where we hunt so you know you're probably going to find, especially later in the season, bucks potentially bedding in areas where they have more exposed sunlight where down here especially in alabama you know, it's only like our cold conditions only last. I mean, cold like getting down to the twenties or less only lasts for like a day or two, and then it's back in like the thirties or forties. So like it never gets so cold that they have to be in exposed sunlight for long periods of time. But when it comes to like the hunting aspect and also scouting, you've got to take all that consideration because if you're like if you're wanting this, this is a great example. Last year in Arkansas, when I went to scout in September with my brother who's in college up there, uh, when we were scouting this place, he was running a lot of cameras. 
He's like, man, I want to hunt this. It was a north. It was a it was a big ridge system that ran uh, east to west, and he's like, I want to hunt the the north side of that uh, because there's a ton of bucks on in the morning. And I'm like, okay, but like, where? How are you going to come in from? He's like, well, I'm coming from the top. And I'm like, okay, but how are you going to set up? And he's like, well, I was going to kind of sit up above the the uh, the trail where they're kind of coming down. And I'm like, you can't do that because on that north facing slope in that tree canopy in that cover. It's going to take so long before you have a thermal, uh, a rising thermal. And we actually went there and was kind of like hanging around the area and didn't have a rising thermal until almost 1130 in the morning on that side because the sun took that long to get high enough up where it heated the bottom up below it to start rising those thermals. So I'm like, if you were going to do this, you'd have to come in from the bottom and then set it below the trail because if you're going to hunt there, unless you're going to hunt till noon, which, you know, of course is always a good option if you get the time for it you're never going to have a rising thermal there. Like, it's just not going to happen that early in the morning. And that's something that he kind of started seeing, and he got more excited about because he started sending me pins. He said, oh, man, what do you think about this for different thermals and everything as he's kind of learned or learning, you know, himself. But, like, you got to take that consideration. Like, if you're going to hunt a north side of a ridge or even a west side of the ridge um, or even south, if it's not facing east and you're going to hunt in the morning, you really need to pay attention how you're coming into it, whether you're coming from the bottom or if you have to come from the top. And if you come from the top, you want like a linear line going straight down to that spot. So you're not casting scent a whole, like all over the place to the, to the left, to the right for, you know, 400 yards. Um, but that's just, it's so critical to kind of look at that. And when you start doing that, you start seeing a lot more deer. Like I, I promise you, when you start paying attention, to that kind of stuff, you're not busting deer before daylight as often. And then also you're leaving a better opportunity for yourself. If you understand how those thermals are falling in the morning, uh, how to set up correctly so you have a better chance of even seeing a deer, let alone trying to get a shot opportunity. Um, and, and, of course, if you understand, if you're hunting as hard as like what we're talking about doing, whether it's on a piece of private land or a piece of public land, you're putting all this effort in there. You don't need to cut yourself short on that insurance route that's going to screw you to not have a good opportunity, especially if you're hiking in there good ways. Um, but this kind of getting back to more of your question as I'm kind of rambling through this, a west-facing slope, if you had a buck that was, say, sp- potentially traveling on a west-facing slope and you could come in from the bottom, that would be an awesome spot to kind of sit down below that travel path and you could hunt that probably till noon with still a falling thermal, as long as there's no other kind of you know wind conditions. If it's light and variable, killing spot right there, hunting down below them. If you're on the east side and it's a morning hunt, you're only going to have falling thermals for a limited time and then it's going to switch. So you have to do two or th- two, one or two things. Either you're going to risk it and you're going to set up above the trail, say specifically if you're coming in from the top, and you're like, you know, I'm just going to bank that, hey, he's probably not going to move until 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'm kind of setting up, thinking that, hey, he's going to come through later in the morning. The thermals are already rise. I don't need to worry about moving. Or if you don't know for sure, you set up below them, especially if you have a drainage that comes up and you're hunting the head of a drainage, uh, which I know you've talked a ton about kind of for setups, especially for the rut, and you're hunting the tip of that drainage in the morning, and then when that wind switches, you're doing one of two things. If the thermals start rising, you're doing one of two things. Either you're going to sit there and risk it and just see how it plays out, whether you're going to come through mid-morning or into the afternoon, or you have to get down and then shift up 20, 30 yards above that travel path and then reset up again. So there's different ways to look at it. But you have to understand that thermal switch because if you don't understand the thermal switch of when that could potentially happen in your area, you're shooting yourself in the foot and you're going to be wondering why deer are busting you when you're supposed to have a rising thermal if you're not paying attention to it. Yeah. Oh, you just hit on such a gold piece there. Like the, the whole idea of setting up above or below the trail. And I'm, I'm not a person that typically likes to like get down from my stand and move into another tree. So like I, I, I look at it depending on, okay, if I'm 
you know, hunting the head of that drainage like you're talking about. Typically, my spots that I'm hunting in those types of places are during the rut, and I'm seeing more like late morning movement, like kind of. So I'll just set it up above it and just knowing that the first couple hours, I'm either going to have to uh, have an opportunity before he hits my wind dropping down, or, you know, but taking advantage or not even going in, you know, going in a little bit later, walking in as it's getting daylight and kind of hunting my way in and setting up above that and would have a less of a time of it coming down. Um, and then, you know, but then if it's like an early season spot where I'm hunting, like, you know, I'm trying to hunt close to bedding and trying to catch them coming back to bed in that morning, I'm hunting below that trail. Cause I'm only going to be hunting for a few hours and then it's kind of dead after that. So that's, that's kind of how I've looked at those particular locations and, and, um, you know, tried to, tried to figure it out, I guess. But, uh, how about like, okay, we talked a little bit about the mornings, you know, with it heating up and, um, how some areas take longer. How does that affect in the evening? How does that change as far as when downhill thermals, how do you see that? So this is when everything flips. This is when it goes from uh, east facing slope to west facing slope and vice versa. So if you're hunting in afternoon specifically, one thing that you're really going to have to pay attention to is of course, how you're accessing. And first off, where do you think the deer is? You know, is the deer going to be higher in elevation to the spot you're hunting, especially if you're talking mountains or hill country here specifically, um, or is he going to be lower elevation, uh, compared to the, the point that you're coming in at? Uh, so you got to take the consideration, but on an afternoon hunt, especially on a west facing slope, a west-facing slope is going to have a, a longer period of time of that rising thermal late until uh, roughly almost sunset than you're going to have on the east-facing slope because you have to now you were having to consider shade and which is we kind of had mentioned earlier uh, when I gave the example of my brother hunting on that trying to hunt the north side of the east-facing slope in the morning shade is, is going to cause not is going to cause uh, dropping thermal or pulling thermal it's going to be pulling downhill okay if that's the case. You could still hunt a east-facing slope, you know, in the afternoon, but again, you're going to want to be down below where you think that deer is going to be coming through, especially if you think he's going to be coming through at three, four o'clock in the afternoon, because when that sun sets over the ridge, automatic thermal start dropping. I mean, and I saw that again in Arkansas as well. It's it's much more dynamic and uh, noticeable in like bigger mountains than you see it in hill country. It still happens in hill country. But those hills, if you're only looking at a couple, like a hundred foot of elevation change in a lot of the hills, like around here, that thermal switch happens so late uh, when it starts dropping that it's pretty much the last 30 minutes, whether you're on the east facing slope or the west facing slope. But in the mountains, totally different situation. We're talking hundreds of feet of elevation change between the two. Um, and that's where I saw this very noticeable. I actually hunted a spot specifically in Arkansas. It was a ridge they had gone through and select cut uh, a huge ridge off this mountain and select cut the whole eastern facing slope where they just left these huge white oaks uh but everything else that grew up in there was like small saplings all kinds of saplings like a lot of your maples your sweet gum stuff like that some sycamore and they're all you know two three inches in diameter well what i found was a ton of deer bedding up there higher up on that point and there's a couple ledges up there or like kind of like little uh, outcroppings that they were bedding in and dropping off, coming down in elevation to feed through all those oaks. So in an afternoon hunt, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I went and fa- hunted an east-facing slope on a light and variable wind, but by 2 o'clock, 2.30, it was already shaded, and the thermals were already dropping that early in the afternoon, and I had a, a deer get up right around probably 4 o'clock, probably an hour and a half, two hours before dark. I could hear it get up and start walking around up there, but it stopped just inside that buffer zone where I could not see that 30, 40 yards farther than I needed to look at. Uh, but it worked exactly what I was, you know, the way I wanted because it was falling thermals the whole time. 
where if you were on a east facing slope or a west facing slope, you would have had rising thermals all the way into probably thirty or forty minutes before sunrise or sundown or sunset, uh, unless it goes behind the following ridge farther than you across the drainage. So shade is your biggest thing you got to pay into to pay attention to. If there's going to be shade where you're at, you're going to have falling thermals, and that's something you need to pay attention. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sh- shade and weather fronts coming in. Same yep. same concept that creates shade essentially that that comes along with that. But what? So how do you think the deer utilize that? Like, do you see in areas like say that the thermal switch earlier that they go to feed earlier or do, do you see any correlation with that? Or have you talked to anybody that has correlations with that? I haven't. No, I, I really haven't. Uh, as in like feeding, uh, necessarily. Uh, I do think that especially when you're talking pre-rut and, and rut, the bucks definitely are doing like, I think the does they're going to move around whenever they decide okay, yeah. based off their conditions and, and really, you know what they're doing. The bucks though, I think really do key in on that uh, and, and really key in on that thermal switch happening and then start moving and cruising, whether it's in the morning. And again, that's why you see a lot of big bucks getting killed between 10 and two. And, uh, and not only just because of thermals, but also, you know, does going back to bed and all that kind of stuff. And they're trying to catch, you know, cut trails, but there's definitely something to that thermal switch happening in the mornings and then also in the evenings, as in when I'm starting to see that bu- those bucks getting up and cruising and, and, and kind of covering ground, checking scrapes specifically uh, during that time of the day. And also, especially when you're talking falling thermals in the afternoon, going to what a lot of guys call thermal hubs or like growing up, we'd call them a bowl down here in the southeast where you just have multiple drainages. It could be high up on a ridge, but you have multiple drainages all coming to one central location. It was a great spot to find a big primary scrape. And those bucks going into one of those areas on, say, an east-facing slope that gets shaded by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he may go down there by 3.30, scent check any does that may be bedded up above him on any of those secondary ridge points, and he can smell who's all in the area, which is something you can definitely key in on, especially for like your afternoon hunts. Or, on the flip side, you can still do it on a morning hunt, but you have to know that you have a very short window of time, depending on what side that thermal hub's on of the ridge, uh, you have a certain window of time that you're going to have following thermals before the thermal switch. And then that spot's not going to be that good after that happens. Yeah. And, and it's funny you call them, you call them a bowl. That's what we always called them too. Like when I first started hearing that term thermal hub being thrown around, yeah. I was like, what, what is this? Is this something that's made up, you know, and then realize that that's, yeah, it's exactly, it's a bowl, bunch of points and valleys that kind of come down to one central location. And there's typically a, a big giant car hood size scrape that's down there in the bottom and, and explain a little bit about those, like those thermal hubs or bowls. And, you know, how, how do you look at them as far as from a hunting uh, situation? Do you hunt directly is there situations where you can't hunt them is there or is it too difficult to hunt what is your perspective on that in our area specifically they're very difficult to hunt because if there's any kind of wind at all two three mile an hour wind you're gonna have swirling winds down there like it's it's a matter of fact at least where we're at it's very hard to find consistent wind currents down there now if it's light and variable you're in the money but if it's also light and variable it, it seems like our trail cameras have shown, like, if it's light and variable winds, um, these bucks are very cautious kind of coming into there. Like, you can tell that, like, they understand something's going on. Even though there's a thermal pull, they may not be as comfortable as if there were swirling winds where they can smell everything around them very easily. Yeah. Um, so, more or not, it's not hunting down in the thermal hub. It's trying to figure out what's the best ambush point in and around the thermal hub that I can catch that buck dropping down into it. 
or if an opportunity arises and say, whether you're bow hunting or if it's muzzler season or rifle season, you have an opportunity to get a visual to kind of see how these deer are using it. Cause you can only learn so much from a trail camera. You can only see like what's in front of the trail camera. If you put eyes in that bowl where you're having a thermal rise, but still, especially if you're up on one of these taller ridges, you can kind of figure out what's the deer doing if they're coming through that bowl and what's that path of travel and how I can kind of go in and off that. Um, but there, there's there, a lot of them, or at least where we're at, they're very, very tough to hunt because we have very, very steep drainages. And if you get down in there and there's any kind of wind current that's not just a thermal pool, um, you're going to have issues. You're going to have issues yeah. getting busted. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. It, it depends on, like with us, it depends on how steep it comes down to and how tight that hub is. You know, if it if it's open enough down there and you get a calm, cool, cool morning, I've hunted, I've hunted those a lot and I've, and I've really liked them, but it's very situational and it's very weather dependent on what's going on versus and terrain dependent on whether, you know, that, that you can hunt that. Cause I've talked a lot about hunting Creek bottoms and hunting some of those thermal type hubs areas and people like you can't do that. It's, it's, you know, it's impossible, but it's, it depends on that situation and what, and how, how it lays out. And it, and a lot of times I can't even tell that by looking at a map other than being there and, and checking it, whether I'm scouting in the spring or whatever, and just like throwing milkweed and running cameras and figuring that stuff out because it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to be able to predict. But, and, and I like what you said too, about like trying to figure out, you know, maybe how they're dropping into it or where they're coming out of it and like trying to find like the outside of it. I always look at that, like with scrapes, like big scrapes that are in the middle of a saddle in like a high pressured area. They're not typically going to hit that during the daylight, but they might be hanging around there in some way or another. Maybe it's 250 yards down the ridge, more towards the point on the side hill. You might be able to find a spot to be able to to get in on them on daylight. And there's, it's it's just kind of like finding that sign and then looking at the big picture and you know considering all these million different things on why they're supposed to win and uh, and trying to put together best laid plans, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's, it kind of comes back down to like what you were saying. It, you know, I think everybody takes everything that's being said on podcasts or videos or whatever, like as like the honest truth, but like your area is so specific, like no matter where you're hunting at, what maybe works for me might not work for somebody in say Kentucky and what works for you might not work for somebody in, um, say Ohio for whatever reason. But there's certain things you got to think of, like where we're at, we have a lot of very steep little drainages again, cause I'm in more hill country where I'm at here in Alabama. So yeah, you don't have these big hubs. If it's a big hub like that or a big bowl, they're cutting it because we're in an area they do a ton of logging and they'll come all the way down through there and leave just a little strip of trees. So any of those big hubs, at least where we're at, unless you're like big national forest that they don't cut a whole bunch, they're cut and it's like there's not a whole bunch you can really work with there. Yeah. Uh, but I've gone to other areas and I've even scouted aerial scouted places like up in Arkansas specifically that you do have these bigger hubs on the side of these ridges on the side of these mountains that are up maybe a little higher in elevation they're not always down at the bottom that are like awesome looking spots for especially if a buck's coming cruising through there he can drop off one point go straight through it come up the other side where he goes up the point or up on the drainages and he can smell anything that's gone through that area or anything up above him if it's falling thermals and kind of keep on moving uh, but again just where we're at in the country down here in the deep south it's just I haven't seen it super applicable where we're at currently, but we have a lot of guests. Again, we talked to that come from a more big woods situation and, and uh, habitat type that they do it and they have a ton of success with it. And again, but it's more of those kind of gentle uh, bowls. They're not so tight where well, I'm talking tight. I mean, less than 50 yards easily. 
Yeah, in some yeah, of those that's, areas. Yeah, I there's yeah, I haven't found a situation with something that tight that I would even think about working. Like it's it's really really difficult and and yeah you're right it is so situational because i remember i went to ohio for the first time in 2014 and tried doing that and getting in those bottoms and some of those places that i'd hunt in pa and i just got my ass kicked like it just was not it 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 was not they were not coming through there in daylight and maybe they were but i was they they smelled me well before i saw them you know and and that was probably the, the more realistic uh outlook on it but you know and that's what we're you know talking about like nighttime activity and and the creek bottoms and stuff there i think a lot of it comes down to like my cameras show i'll have daylight activity in some of these spots but when i'm hunting it it's not that because they're they're on top of you you know ahead of time and and i think i don't know it's just something to know and understand that it's yeah it's definitely very different depending on where you're at yeah, big tip for the listeners. If you have a pattern on a buck based off trail camera, like he's always coming in here on XYZ and you go in there and he doesn't show up, you're probably the outside factor of why he didn't show up. And you got to figure out why was that? How did he smell or see me or what happened, hear me, if I made noise, you know, hanging tree stand or whatever, that made that happen. And I hear that happen to so many guys. Like, man, you know, I got this buck. He's always coming in like my, my food plot or whatever. He's always coming through, checking the scrape. And I go in there and hunt him for a couple of days. I just don't ever see him. I'm like, he knows you're there. Like, the other deer in the area are keying in on you based off however you're coming in. A lot of times I find it's from access. Um, you know, guys that really slack. I'm guilty of it too. I'm not talking like I'm like the, the poster child of excellent access. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> no. But uh, <laughs> but I, I also have the, uh, the understanding of like calling myself out like when I am slacking. Like, oh, man, that was a stupid thing. I should have side-heeled. I should have, you know, done the harder thing of just going up and over the top and dropping back down instead of side-heeling around because it would have been easier on my legs or whatever. Um, so you, you can't have those excuses because that's going to be a factor for you of like, hey, you might have a pattern, but he's keying on you somehow. And uh, that's the reason why you're not seeing them. Yeah. And we, and, and I know for myself personally, as the season goes on, the more lax I get, and that's where you start making mistakes. Like, you know, right at the beginning, you're, you're on it. You got your access dialed. You're doing that. Well, after five, six days of hunting in a row, sometimes like even during the rut, it's like, eh, well, you know, maybe I could come in this way a little easier, do that. Like, oh, there's not, not going to worry about it. And, and that's the times that it, it screws you. And like, and again, I'm not the poster child for saying that, like, like, as you said, Jacob for this, but if you can have that mindset as like, okay, this is the last time I'm going to have to hunt this spot all year. And you have that every time you go in, I think you could, you could do a lot better from, from that perspective. And to me, that's where it comes at. Like with a lot of these really successful hunters that we, like we both have interviewed is like, they don't let themselves slack or if they do, they call themselves on it and they correct it. Because if you start slacking, especially like if you think about it, if you're like going gun ho early in the season, you got leaf on conditions, it's harder to see. Like you can't get as good of a visual long distance and so does the buck. So yeah, maybe he kind of hears you walking away, but he can't really see you. If you start slacking come when the leaves are off and he can visually see you and you're kind of slacking on access and you're maybe you're kind of pushing the envelope in a dumb way that you shouldn't be pushing the envelope in you're going to get busted and it's just, you're going to be having a lot of deer getting blown at you, whether you're not paying attention to how you're actually based off wind and thermals, or it's more of a visual or hearing basis that you're not paying attention to your access. And you're just shooting yourself in the foot and you're wondering why I've gone eight hunts or 10 hunts and not seen a deer. Uh, yeah. So I mean, a lot of that needs to come back. Like you got to look back at yourself. Like, what am I doing? Where am I? Why am I hunting these areas that look like they have a lot of sign, 
whether, you know, it may be nighttime sign and you might be screwing yourself because you're hunting a spot that has a lot of nighttime sign there. But you gotta, you gotta look back at yourself. Like, what am I doing that's causing this? Or what, what, what am I not keying in on that's not helping me, you know, lay visuals on some of these deer that I should be seeing right now? One of the things I learned from Johnny Stewart that like from hunting with him and spending a lot of time around him in like the late season here where we get like some snow and some crusty snow that's kind of loud walking for access. He does the whole heel to toe thing when he's walking to make him sound like a deer. For And I had never thought of that. Like I thought it was crazy when he was first telling me it. And I was like, okay, actually it was the day I killed a buck with him, my biggest deer to date, we were walking in and it was kind of a little bit crunchy snow. And he's like, he Heel to toe, heel to toe as you're going down. And I was thinking that in my head. He's like, because it sounds like the way a deer would walk more so than if you're just flat footing it and kind of coming in and rolling it. And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting perspective. And that's, again, someone who's just a natural, well, I shouldn't say natural killer. He, he built himself. But like, those are things that they think about when they're, you know, becoming, you know, to, to be successful all the time are these little nuances and these little things that come down to access and stuff that can really make a, make a huge, huge difference with it. Yeah. And another thing that you can do as well, that some people don't necessarily think about. And I had a guy tell me about this and I was like, man, that's ingenious. And I've done it a little bit, but is either using, if you're like in hill country, if you have a way to strap your bow to your back or, or your backpack or whatever, uh, and you're going in is either using like not using a walking stick, but using a trekking pole and, and walking with that trekking pole and either use one trekking pole and it kind of helps break up the monotony and you can walk quicker because if you do that hill to toe, you, you can only walk so fast yeah. doing that. So like if you're having to sneak through an area, like, yeah, you want to slow down, but sometimes like you have to go through a big, like open area. Like you just, it is what it is. A ton of leaf. Like you just got to do what you got to do. And like using like the trekking pole or something like, dude, you can sound so much like a deer. Like it is crazy. And also I'll say this, if you do that and it's like, I saw this after taking uh, my puppy uh, or my bird dog out uh, last year and we actually did a little scout trip. I was pretty much running her for a few miles and having that little dog, which now she's huge now, but at the time she's 25 pounds, like walking, running around that, like how natural it sounds. We walked up on more deer with her around than when I'm out there by myself walking around, just walking. And when we walked up the deer, like the cover type was like waist and chest high. So the deer couldn't see her walking around. The deer would see me, and it was a couple small bucks and then and a bunch of does. They would visually see me, and I would just stop I, once I saw them. But they'd still hear Pepper running around, or even when Pepper stopped, and they were like less on alert. It was the weirdest freaking thing. But like when I've gone out there without her walking around, you get busted. The second they see you, and they you know hear ch 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 just you walking, they're they're keyed and they're gone. Yeah. Um, but definitely that, that adding that that uh, that sound effect where it sounds like again it's four legs walking, even if it doesn't. It's not a deer. It's just like a the dog out there like they just i don't know i feel like they're just much more inclined to sit there and wait and see what it is instead of like oh crap i know what that sounds like and get out of here yeah it's more natural sounding exactly what you said i I, that's i like the trekking pole um idea too that's that's uh i had not heard that one before but i like that that concept too it allows you to walk a little bit faster too and helping as you're going up some of those those hills you know that's 100 I, I use trekking poles out west all the time sissy you know they're you know people call them sissy sticks but i'll tell you they're 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 um they're they one they save a little bit on your knees and everything else and kind of help with uh with moving around so that's interesting concept it helps. They help so much with footing. That's why I give people, because I've had people say, oh man, like, yeah, you're freaking loser for using trekking poles. And I'm like, my thing is like getting really good footing 
especially whether you have them across water or like really steep, like un like uh like loose ground, mm-hmm. it, it's it's worth having. But again, also if you have a good pair of trekking poles that collapse, like you just like once you get to the tree, like you just slide them down real quietly, lock them up, and then throw them on your backpack or throw them in your backpack, and you're good to go and they're quiet. Um, so I mean, there, there's so many different ways for you to be effective out there, and again, add some realism to how you're entering, exiting, and another thing. That Andrew does. I try. I do a little bit, but I can't natural voice Yelp as good as Andrew does. But he'll go in and he has a beautiful natural voice Yelp, like hen Yelp, and he'll like walk through and do hen Yelps as he's walking through loud leaf cover, and like walk right past here. Like we've done that scouting before, where he's like, "Let's, you know, I think we're gonna have some deer in here, but we're just gonna go through and check it out in Georgia and do it, and literally walk up on a group of does that were bedded, and they don't realize, they don't freak out until you, they turn around and see you, and they're thirty five yards from you." Um, but like just, just yelping as you're going through the woods and either doing that or keeping a mouth call with you, which some people do. So absolutely, oh, it's, it, it's, yeah, that's, I, I like that. I like that. I don't have the natural, uh, yelp with my mouth, but what I, well, actually it wouldn't, it would definitely wouldn't work because the only thing I can do naturally with my mouth is a crow call and crows don't walk around on two feet like that. So I don't know if that would, <laughs> I don't know if that would help out. <laughs> oh, let, let, let me say this cause it has nothing to do with thermals, but I truly believe this. I think when deer, if you have turkeys in your area, I think when deer hear turkeys, it puts them at ease because everything in the woods wants to eat a turkey. Okay. Yeah. Number, number one. Number two, you can make way more noise if you're yelping like that. I mean, we'll go through and walk through an area like we hunted a spot last year where there's no way to be quiet. Like you're dropping in into a very loud like uh, drainage system that has a bunch of bedding in and around it, uh, where it's a bunch of leaf litter. Like it's just tons of leaves. Like there's no way to walk quietly. And me and Andrew will walk in there and like sound like two turkeys walking. He'll call. I'll call a little bit. And then you sit there, scratch the leaves, like rake the leaves with your foot. I mean, make a lot of noise because turkeys, if you ever hear a flock of turkeys in the fall, they make ungodly amount of noise, like walk through the woods. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I, I've seen deer be bedded down or, cr- or like walking around and they hear turkeys and they're just like, it's no big deal. They kind of keep on doing their own thing. They mill around, they feed. And we've walked up on so many deer doing that. Like us walking up, doing that, walk up. And then like when they finally see us, like, oh God, and get out of here. But I'm telling huh. you, it, like if you don't want to do the trekking pole thing, like the, the, the hen yelp works really, really good. Except at night. It's the only time it, no, no, no. <laughs> This, this, this is one, yeah, well, yeah, that too in May during turkey season. <laughs> but the the one issue that Andrew's ran into, I've never done it. But if you call in a flock of turkeys while you're walking, which Andrew's done before, and then they flush, you're screwed. Like because they make so much noise when they flush and they fly away, yeah, you're in trouble. But uh, but it, it's worked really really well for us. And again, I truly believe. Like I've seen early season sitting in the stand in like a on a like a hardwood ridge that's got a bunch of oaks dropping, a group of Turkeys come in, and they're scratching, making all the noise. And literally, like minutes later, like you see, like like we had like a, it was a young bachelor, a bunch of like two and a half year old bucks come just easing on in with the turkeys feeding with them. And I, I truly believe that again, if something's going to be out there and wants to eat something, it's going to want to eat a turkey. And they're tur- they're so spooky anyways. I think the the deer really do key off uh, the turkeys and the, kind of their behavior and everything. And if the turkeys are calm, the deer are going to be calm. Yeah. Yep. I, yeah. I, I I like that. That's a that's an interesting way of looking at it. And you're right because like the the deer have a lot. Um, they feel a lot safer than turkeys do. Again, everything wants to eat a turkey. I mean, just about any predator out there small or big has a opportunity at killing a turkey so and they're skittish and they have good eyesight so like you know turkeys are typically gonna take off or do something a little bit 
you know, easier than even a deer would, I would say, from the eyesight perspective of it. Tell everybody where they can find out some more, obviously, the Southern Outdoorsman podcast, anywhere's podcast, but is there anywhere else that you want to direct people to? Yeah, to I find mean, out you can yourself? just go, and of course, if you're on social media, you can find us at the Southern Outdoorsman, and it's M E N, not Southern Outdoors Man, but Men, M E N. Or check us out on any major listening platform, uh, the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. Uh, it, our podcast is a little bit different. This was very much more of a conversational show and ours is like a lot of like getting like super detailed questions, but sometimes I wish it was more like conversational because these are like the more fun episodes, I think from, from an inter yeah. an interview. <laughs> but guys, you can check that out. Uh, again, very, very kind of detailed conversations about all kinds of topics with successful hunters and whether if you're in the Southeast or not, again, I'm sure there's some big uh, key takeaways that you can get from specific episodes. So again, Bo, thank you for letting me come on and uh, Hey, now time to get over to our next podcast. Heck yeah, man. All right. Well, we'll, we'll catch up with you soon, Jacob. I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll, uh, we'll talk here. So let's, uh, Absolutely. let's talk to you soon. All right. See you, man. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.